0: Hi, I'm Mission Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas in personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Vishal Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Vishal Kiani, and with me, I have the legendary Ken Wilber. Ken, how are you today?
1: Hello, my friend. Good to hear your voice, and I'm delighted to be here with all of you.
0: So, what we did for all of you listening is, I put up several posts on my Facebook. I got several dozen people to ask their deepest most interesting questions to Ken on a variety of topics from the world we live in and understanding geopolitics and how things are playing out today, to education, to personal growth and deep questions such as what are stages beyond cosmocentricness, as well as questions on God and religion itself. So, it's been a very interesting conversation and we'll be talking about education and the world we live in. So, we're going to start with the first question and this came from Shala Anna Lucia. Shala asks, Is it possible to bring about health on this planet if every newborn was given the right upbringing education? Followed by, what would the ideal education model for humanity look like? So, Ken, that's a big one. I'd love to hear your take on it.
1: Yeah, it is a big one. And so we need to cover just a few components to make sure we're touching all the bases. And one of the things we have to remember here is that the human being is a complex combination of various aspects different dimensions, different levels of development, different lines of development or multiple intelligences, different states of consciousness, including ones like enlightenment or awakening, different types, and so on. In integral theory, we summarize all these with a framework. It's technically called AQUAL, A-Q-A-L, which is short for all quadrants, all levels, all lines, all states, all types. But those are really just ways to summarize all of these various components of a human being. And if we're going to have a truly whole education, we're going to have to touch on all of these areas. So I mentioned quadrants, and quadrants just means different perspectives, like I, we, it. Those are three very real, very important, but very different domains. They're the basis of things like the good, the true, and the beautiful. The good is the we, or how we treat each other, ethics. The true is the it domain, or objective truth, or facts, the realm of science. And beauty is the eye domain, or beauty in the eye of the beholder, or all the great individual and personal potentials of any human All three of those domains are important. But today, most education focuses just on the it domain or teaching facts and objective truth. It leaves out or ignores the we domain or interpersonal intelligence and social interaction and ethical values. And it's very thin on the I domain, personal realities and values and purpose, and potentials. And it turns out that the I domain is actually very important, especially in education. And it consists of things including different lines of development or multiple intelligences. Usually education just focuses on only one or two of our multiple intelligences. But we now know human beings have upwards of a dozen different multiple intelligences, most of which are just thoroughly ignored. Education mostly focuses on cognitive intelligence or book smarts, but there's also emotional intelligence, moral intelligence, values intelligence, aesthetic intelligence, spiritual intelligence, among others, and all of those are incredibly important. They're all very real, they actually exist, they're not just theoretical, and they're all almost completely ignored. What we've also learned, which is absolutely fundamental, is that all those lines of development grow and evolve through a series of stages or levels of development. One version of those levels, for example, goes from magic to mythic to rational, to pluralistic, to integral. These levels are really important because they're the basic frameworks or grids or worldviews through which we see and interpret and experience our world in any of our multiple intelligences. Thus, for example, the postmodern feature of culture anywhere nowadays is something called the culture wars. And the culture wars are ongoing cultural battles between what are widely recognized as three different worldviews or value systems. And these are simply the three most common values or the three most common of these levels that I just mentioned. In other words, the three combatants in the culture wars are, one, the traditional religious, usually with what's called a mythic literal worldview, then two, modern science with a rational worldview, and then three, postmodern multiculturalism with a pluralistic or relativistic worldview. In short, the culture wars are pre-modern, modern versus postmodern or mythic, rational, versus pluralistic. And what none of the individuals who are involved in these culture wars seem to realize is that those are three of the major levels of development available to all human beings. But we don't educate for any of that, even though it's the predominant feature in today's culture, present everywhere and unrelentingly. What's more, as research shows... There are yet higher levels of development or levels of consciousness, which only a very small portion of the population has developed to so far, such as the integral level. And we don't teach those because we mostly just aren't aware of them. So families don't teach them, education doesn't teach them, and the culture at large certainly doesn't teach them. So humanity is flying way under its full potential, simply because we do not educate for the whole or complete human being. We educate for just a small part, a slice, a fragment of what's possible for us. And we certainly see this with another element in the aqua framework, namely states of consciousness. Because according to the great wisdom traditions around the world, not only do humans possess typical states of consciousness like waking, dreaming, and deep sleep, they also possess profoundly high states of consciousness like enlightenment or awakening, so-called moksha, satori, gnosis, metamorphosis, the great liberation. And none of our standard educational systems teach any of that. Now, all of these factors I've mentioned, from the good and the true and the beautiful, or I, we, and it, to multiple intelligences, to levels of development, to states of enlightenment, or waking up, none of these are rare, isolated, esoteric, far out, strange, or occult. They're all some of the very most basic and most fundamental potentials of a human being everywhere. They're simply human 101, yet we don't educate human 101. We educate something like human one-tenth. We are educating very partial, very fragmented, very broken people. It's tragic, really. And then we wonder why the planet and humanity itself is in such trouble. So yes, I firmly believe that we could bring about health on this planet, for the planet and for the humans on it, if we started educating the whole person with all their fundamental potentials and capacities and skills and stop this fragmented partial, broken system that we have now. Absolutely. And not doing so, really. It's
0: just tragic. Thank you, Ken. That was a very, very detailed answer. What I'm going to do, for those of you listening, is I'm going to include a couple of graphs uh, that will help you understand the various quadrants and the aqual model that Ken speaks of. So, you talk about the three different culture wars, traditional religious, modern science, postmodern. How does this relate to the worldviews we spoke about in the earlier part of this interview. In other words, going from ethnocentric to world centric to cosmocentric. Exactly.
1: Well, what we find is that human identity runs a spectrum going from egocentric where the individual was identified just with themselves, to ethnocentric, where they are identified with a group or a chosen group or their own clan or family or tribe or perhaps even nation. And that's an us versus them type of mentality. And then from there to world-centric. And world-centric means... We're identified with all humans, regardless of race, color, sex, or creed. And so there are a couple of stages of world-centric, and then it moves into the very highest stages of cosmos centric And there we identify not just with human beings, but with all sentient beings, with all of manifest reality, basically a unity consciousness, one with the entire manifest universe. So then if we give names to the various worldviews, and those go from magic to mythic to rational to pluralistic to integral, then magic tends to be very egocentric. It's focused just on a single tribe. And we're talking about early tribes now. We're not talking about Mm -hmm. tribes that exist today. Because they've continued to evolve. We're talking about all humans some 500,000 years ago. And there, an individual was related in terms of kinship ties or biological ties. If a tribe met another tribe, they didn't know how to relate to them. And so they took them either as being non-human or demonic. And warfare was usually the result. So that's what happens when you're just egocentrically identified really with just yourself and a small group. As tribes begin to expand and come together, then they begin to be related not just by blood, but by belief in a mythic origin. So the 12 tribes of Israel, for example, They couldn't get united because each of the tribes actually had a different blood lineage. And they each had their own uncles and grandparents and so on. And you were only related if you had the same genetics, if you were blood related. So there were no way to get the 12 tribes together. But when all of the tribes began to believe in a mythic God called Yahweh, then all of them, regardless of their actual blood relationship, could all say that they were brothers and sisters of Yahweh. And so the 12 tribes of Israel came together into a larger, much more unified society. And so this was ethnocentric. This was not just based on a person or just a small group, but an entire group orientation and based on a given race or creed or religion or religious belief. And that's what mythic did. And that's why mythic was so important. And it's why mythic is the beginning of the great foundational civilizations that we see around the world of Greece and Roman and Mesopotamian and Indus Valley and China and so on. And so that was a very, very important move. But we still couldn't get the different ethnic segments together. It was still the Franks versus the Teutons and one empire versus another empire. And as we reached world centric, where people felt identified with all humans, regardless of race, color, sex, or creed, then we had the Western Enlightenment. And it had its pluses and its minuses. But there, they started to talk about universal rights of humans. Not just the rights of us versus them, but the rights of all of us. And so this was the first truly universal gathering of humanity. And that was profoundly important. And then as that moved on into the postmodern era we began to really look very closely at all of the different cultures and we realized that not just one truth is true for all of them, but that different cultures each have their own important truths and that what's true for one culture is not necessarily true for other cultures, even though we're all part of one humanity. And so we started to give emphasis Not that there's just one greatest culture, the Western culture, but that there are Persian cultures and Eastern cultures and Mideastern eastern cultures and African cultures and so on. And all of them are to be given equal respect and equal dignity. But we didn't know how to fit those together. And that's what Integral managed to do, is find a way to fit all of the world's cultures together under one tent. And so that was a profound move forward. And we're really just on the edge of that right now. So in each case, in each of these evolutionary unfoldings, you see identity get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Going from the smallest identity with just one human to an identity with just one tribe or one family to an identity with a group of tribes brought together in one nation, to an identity with all nations, all humans, and then to an identity with all of reality, all sentient beings. So we see this holistic drive, this drive to greater wholeness and greater unity. And so it becomes very clear that the universe, driven by evolution, is not winding down. The universe is winding up. It's producing greater and greater wholes, greater unities, and much more inclusive entities. So that's a really profound and important notion. And a lot of people would see that as a spirit in action, spirit driving towards greater wholeness, greater
0: unity, greater interconnectivity. Ken, I need to ask a question yeah. here. Okay, so what you're referring to, going from archaic to integral on that scale, I want to make sure I understand. I believe that is one scale of human development. I think that's called Gebser's world views. Am I correct?
1: Yes. And okay. There are over a hundred different developmental right. models. And they all show a great deal of similarity in terms of these major levels. But Gefster's is one
0: version. There are several. And the scale from egocentric to cosmocentric is the same thing. It's just a different philosopher's worldview, but it measures the same state of awareness. Or is it very yes, different? It, yes, that particular scale
1: going from egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric to cosmocentric, that measures the degree of identity. Of a human being. Am I identified just with myself? Am I identified with my family, my clan, my tribe? Am I identified with my nation? Am I identified with all of humanity? Am I identified with all of reality? So my identity gets bigger and bigger and bigger.
0: I see. Now, Gebs' so if you have to define that, what is that measuring? Gebs' worldview,
1: look, it just generally what's called worldview. And what a worldview is, is everybody has some general idea about what the world is like, what it's made of, what's important, what its components are. Some people have a more scientific worldview. Some people have a more religious worldview. Some people have a more artistic worldview. Some people have a more moral worldview. So it's just a way that we look at the world around us And the way that we think about it, the way we categorize it,
0: the terms we use to explain it, and how we explain it to ourselves. I see. And so what you're saying then, Ken, is that if you look at Gebser's worldview, education isn't catering for multiple worldviews.
1: Well, exactly. And what education, or we would say almost every era of human development has had some form of education. Even tribes educated their young into their tribal worldview. And that tribal worldview was a specific level of development. It was one of the earlier levels of development. It has some very positive aspects about it. But it was also very young and just developing in many ways. So there was no understanding of atoms and no understandings of ways to cure viral diseases. The average lifespan in the original tribal societies was about 28 years. The average carrying capacity of a tribe was about 40 people. So if you had more infants than that, you, quote, threw them away. You committed infanticide because you couldn't support them with the amount of food you could generate. Most of your time was spent Hunting and gathering. In other words, looking for food. It was a survival mechanism. And then, as we learned to farm and plant food, then just a few people could grow food for everybody. And that meant that a lot of other people were free to pursue other pursuits. And so, mathematics was invented, writing was invented. Forms of government were invented, and we started to see the flourishing of great civilizations because not every person had to be out spending their time hunting every day just to stay alive. Other, Just a handful of people could farm. That would keep everybody alive, and all these other people could specialize. And so we started to learn new
0: techniques and so on. So what you were saying earlier was that our education needs to evolve to make sure that we're also educating people within the mythic, the rational, and the pluralistic worldview.
1: We want to educate because what those turn out to be, those worldviews that humanity at large went through, it turns out that today individuals from birth go through those same worldviews. So an individual is born in the first year, they're at the archaic stage, an individual in today's world. And today's world is rational or pluralistic. It's not archaic or magic or mythic, but individuals will still grow through those early stages. So a child in the first year of life is primarily at the archaic stage. Then from around ages one or two to age five or six, they're at the magic stage and they act magically. They'll stick their head under a pillow and think that because they can't see you, you can't see them. And so they'll hide in front of a whole group of people by sticking their head under a pillow. That's pure magic. Voodoo is magic. If you make a doll representing a person... And you stick a pin in that doll, then the real person will
0: actually be hurt, magically hurt. And Ken, so if we were to educate kids and young adults in that way, what would that education look like? I'd love to get your views on the curriculum. What exactly would your vision of an ideal education curriculum look like? And what age would it start? And how would it evolve as someone gets older? Well, that's the thing.
1: Archaic, the first year or so, the education is really just how the infant learns to get around the sensory motor world. So they learn that if they bite an object and it doesn't hurt, and they bite their thumb and it does hurt, there's a difference between their thumb and the object, the chair when they're first born they can't tell the difference between their body where their body stops and a chair starts so they have to learn that and that's during the archaic period during the first couple of years of life called the sensorium motor stage today that's what infants are learning that's their education learning about their own physical body and eating and getting food and water and all the basic necessities for that stage when they move into magic their thinking becomes fantasy. And so it's appropriate that a certain kind of fantasy thinking is allowed and that kids be allowed to pursue modes of fantasy thinking. And we do this automatically every Saturday morning on cartoon shows because cartoon shows, every major superhero is a source of magic. They can fly. They can walk through walls. They have x-ray vision. That's all magic. That's a complete magic worldview. And the kids are immersed in that. That's how they think. That's what they want to be. That's what they want to grow up to be. And that's fine. It's just giving those capacities a chance to get exercised and to get used. Sooner or later, they find out that magic doesn't work very well. And also, magic can't take the role of other. Magic is very egocentric. So uh, infant in the magic stage, if you put a ball that's colored green on one side and red on the other between you and a five-year-old, you turn the ball several times so that the five-year-old can see that it's colored green on one half and red on the other. So you turn it so the green side is facing the child, the red side is facing you, and you say, what color are you looking at to the child? They're looking at green. And so you say, what color are you looking at? And they will correctly say green. Then if you say, what color am I looking at? You're looking at red. They'll say green. They can't see through your perspective. They can't take your point of view. They can't take the role of other. And that's what magic is like. And so as mythic starts to emerge... At around age six or seven, one of the things that happens is you can take the role of other. So you can start to identify with others, not just yourself. So now education moves to a whole group setting. And you need to learn how to get along with other human beings. You have to learn roles. You have to learn rules that you have to follow in society. You have to start to learn certain laws and certain restrictions. You have to learn how to get along with a other group of people. And so education needs to focus on that. And then as you continue to grow into the rational stage of development in early adolescent, then all of a sudden, you can take up a third person perspective. You can think objectively. All of a sudden, all of the sciences come into being. And so you start to learn about chemistry, and biology, and you start to learn mathematics, and you start to learn rational worldview. And so the point is that as education unfolds, we're going through all of these levels of development and fulfilling them, fleshing them out, learning our way around in them so that we can move on to the next higher level. And so that's one of the most important things that we want to do in education. And we do it, but we do it in a very sort of haphazard way. And we don't include educating in the same way for quadrants and for multiple lines of development, multiple intelligences. We don't teach those very well. We don't teach states of consciousness very well. So that was my point, is that we're fairly limited in how we teach the whole panoply of human potentials.
0: So Ken, what are we doing education-wise? Like, what are we teaching right now? Or what should we teach for the pluralistic and the integral worldviews? Because you stopped at rational at early adolescent. Is that where our modern education stops? Well, what happens is that
1: each of these worldviews Whether it's traditional, mythic, ethnocentric, or whether it's rational, world centric, or whether it's pluralistic, postmodern, or whether it's integral, each of those has upwards of a dozen different developmental lines. So each of those has a cognitive component. Each of those has an emotional component. Each of those has a moral component. Each of those has an aesthetic component. Each of those has a spiritual component. Each of those has a linguistic component. And so on through the 12 or so multiple intelligences that we have. The problem is that we still only teach primarily cognitive intelligence and linguistic intelligence. And so those are still the two major forms of like an SAT test. You're tested for math, and you're tested for verbal. There's no testing for your emotional intelligence, your spiritual intelligence, your aesthetic intelligence, your interpersonal intelligence, your kinesthetic intelligence. I mean, we're leaving out bucketfuls of intelligences that are just getting no attention at all. And through each of those levels, mythic, rational pluralistic, integral. Each of those, in a complete way, deals with all 12 of those multiple intelligences. And each of those multiple intelligences advances a stage, goes to a higher level with each of these major levels of development. And that's exactly what we're not doing, except in just cognitive and just linguistic. So we're leaving out those parts of a human being that are emotional, that are interpersonal, that are social, that are spiritual, that are aesthetic. It's a terribly, terribly limited view of what a human being is, and therefore a very limited view about what we should
0: educate them for. And that's our problem. Now, Ken, traditionally, we tend to think of seven different types of intelligence. You suggest they are 12. There are dozens of different theorists
1: who have proposed different numbers of multiple intelligences. So the first that sort of made news with this was indeed Howard Gardner. And Gardner suggested seven major intelligences, but he subsequently added several, and he's talked about the possibility of several others. Well, many other theorists, who are also very, very bright, had given reasons to include upwards of another half dozen intelligences. So when I say a dozen right now, we have very good theorists recommending, I say, up to a dozen, sometimes more of these intelligences, but it's clearly more than seven, and even Howard Gardner agrees to that.
0: I see. So then, if we were looking at, say, reforming a school curriculum, we should be looking at worldviews going all the way from mythic, rational, pluralistic, and then the dozen or so multiple intelligences within these worldviews, and that would sort of give us a framework for designing a new curriculum. That's correct. Okay, could you give us an example, because I'm sure you've thought about this. Could you give us an example of some interesting classes or activities or learnings that you think a future school designed in this way might incorporate? So let's say we go on to the pluralistic worldview. What would some of the lessons be? Sure. If we
1: take, let's say, the moral intelligence, for example, which is not being educated for now, and yet we have models of moral development that have now been tested in over 40 different cultures. And the cognitive components of those have been tested in over 40 different cultures. These models have been tested in Amazonian rain tribes. They've been tested in Australian aborigines, in Mexican workers, in German citizens. No major exceptions have been found to their stages. So this is very real information, and it's not being used. So if we just take one intelligence that's not being used, moral intelligence. Well, if we start and we notice that overall development is running just generically from egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric to cosmocentric, and at the pluralistic stage, it's moving from world-centric towards cosmocentric. So what does that mean? Well, a person's morals, when they're at the egocentric stage, at the magic stage, when they're three or four years old, they're identified just with themselves and they care only about themselves. And so that's the only moral that the person at that stage can be expected to learn. If we try to cram more morals down them at that point, they'll just collapse. They don't get it. It's over their head. They won't understand it. But when you move from magic to mythic, now you have a second person perspective. You can take the role of other and therefore you can start to care about others. And so this is a very important point. And so as the child moves from the worldview of magic to the worldview of mythic, one of the first things you're doing since we're tracing moral is you start to teach them how to care for others. It might be their peer group or for some of their friends or their family. Possibly you could stress care for their nation. And patriotism is okay to introduce at this stage, not higher, but certainly at this stage. And so they get a chance to feel what it's like to care for somebody other than themselves. Right now, we don't do that. We just sort of, you know, kind of say every now and then, that's not nice. You should treat that person nice or something like that. But we don't have formal training in how to do morals. Then when the person at that ethnocentric moral stage, they still have a very strong us versus them. So they've identified with an us now, which is good, but not them. Them are the bad guys, them are the infidels, them are pagans, them are unbelievers, whoever they are. And they're not to be trusted and so on. And that's the best that a person at ethnocentric can do. And that's why fundamentalist religions that are at ethnocentric, that's why they have this very strong us versus them. We have the right way to God, everybody else is wrong. And we therefore have a right to jihad. Jihad is an Islamic term, but every fundamentalist believes it, which is that you have the right to convince, coerce, or kill unbelievers. Because unbelievers don't have souls. So that's that strong ethnocentric morals. It's still caring for more people than just yourself. So it's a move up. But when we move from ethnocentric to world-centric, when we move from mythic to rational, now all of a sudden we care for all people. This is a huge leap. And it's one of the major leaps that fundamentalist religions have to make. And the Catholic Church at Vatican II actually made that leap from ethnocentric to world-centric. They actually said, paraphrasing, A comparable religious salvation can be found in religions other than Christianity. That's the first time in their 2,000-year history that they admitted that, that they moved from their ethnocentric, we've got the only way, you must believe in Christ or you burn in hell forever. And they repudiated that, and they said, no, other religions do have sources of salvation And we acknowledge that. And that was profound. So that was the moral stage moving up into rational and
0: world-centric. That was incredible when that happened. I believe that was the recent pope, right?
1: That happened in Vatican II in the 1960s. The next two popes tended to ignore it. This recent pope, he's starting to pay attention to it. That's why it's causing such a furor. Yeah, Francis is much more Mm -hmm. pluralistic, frankly. And so when you get into pluralistic, then you apply this all-inclusive, you apply this inclusive nature with a vengeance. And that's why this pluralistic stage drove things like the civil rights movement, where we just get incensed if anybody's rights were abridged or taken away or oppressed. And so it becomes a very strong moral drive at that point. And that's one of the positive things about that pluralistic stage. And pluralistic means that. It means that everybody is essentially right. You know, you can't say that one culture is superior to another. This is exactly the topic that will come up when we discuss things like the Indiana freedom of religion, because there's some contradictions in this that get very tricky. And we'll get to those as soon as we get to that. But that's what's coming up here is are there any cultures that can be considered superior? And for the general pluralistic stage, they would say absolutely not. No truth is better than another truth. What's true for you is true for me. And those don't have to agree. And so that's a very powerful moral stance. Now, again, as I say, it turns out to have some problems, but that's the way it's viewed at that stage. And then when we get to integral, it increases the moral span by starting to expand it to all sentient beings. And so now all of a sudden, things like animal rights come up. And, of course, there are differences in animal rights. I mean, not every animal has the same amount of rights, The greater the degree of depth an animal has, the more complex it is, the more evolved it is, the more rights it has. So a gorilla has more rights than a virus. Kill one virus or kill one gorilla, which is worse, killing a gorilla, clearly. So we have to keep that in mind. We can't have just an egalitarianism. If we did that, every HIV person produces a billion HIV viruses a day. If we had real bioequality and every living thing is given one vote, then the HIV virus would be one of the best, most moral things that had ever happened. By a vote of a billion to one, HIV is better than a human. That's where animal rights people get a little bit confused because they do want to extend rights to animals, but they don't take into account the degree of complexity and the degree of consciousness. So like Alan Watts said, he was a vegetarian because cows scream louder than carrots when you kill them. And so he's at least got that in there. And he's understanding that there's differences here. You can't just say a carrot is the same worth as a cow.
0: Ken, you said something earlier and you left an open loop. You said in general pluralistic stage that we'll say that no one truth is better than another truth. That's right. Okay, but you said there might be problems with that. Sure.
1: Starting with pluralistic, the problem when they say no truth is better than another truth, and there are no universal truths, there are only individual, cultural, multicultural truths. No one is better than another. And you say, well, why? And they'll say, well, because all knowledge is relative. All knowledge is interpretive. It's not given. It's an interpretation. All knowledge is based on contextualism, constructivism, and no privileged perspective. Now, they say that all of those items are true for all people in all cultures, in all places, at all times. When they just said you can't say that there's one truth that's true for everybody. They just gave six truths that they maintain are true for absolutely everybody. So they're violating their own rules. They're doing what they claim you can't do and you shouldn't do. They're doing it in spades. So they say you shouldn't have a big picture. They have a very big picture about why big pictures are wrong. They say there are no universal truths. But they maintain their truth is universally true and true for all people. So they're contradicting themselves. And social philosophers call this a performative contradiction. They are doing what they say you can't do. So they get to have all of their truths and they get to have all of their universals and they get to have all
0: of their big pictures, but nobody else does. And that's a blatant contradiction. So I think we've given a very thorough answer to the question, what would the ideal education model for humanity look like? And I know it's a big question, but what I like is you've laid out a matrix-type vision, which right. we can fill out. On one hand, furthermost left column could be levels of intelligence, such as Godness, levels yep. of intelligence. Yep. And then yep. the horizontal rows would be the various worldviews, ranging from magic, the mythic, to plural eccentric. So let's go on to the second question, which is from Myra, who wrote in from France. Can you please explain the spiritual traits of children today? How could we help them get a spiritual upgrade or prevent their spirituality from being blocked by limited beliefs? Right. What we've learned
1: from all these factors that I just mentioned is that they all develop. So like virtually everything in nature, from eggs to chickens and acorns and oaks, living things grow and evolve and develop. The human being starts out as a single cell, a fertilized zygote, and that cell divides into two, which divides into four, which divides into 16, then 32, then 64, and so on. And as the cells are dividing and differentiating, they're also integrating into various systems, A circulatory system, a nervous system, a muscular system, a digestive system, and so on. And all of those are integrated into an overall fully functioning total organism. And then that organism grows from infancy into childhood into adolescence, adulthood, and elderhood. So development itself is a continuous process of transcend and include, transcend and include. Transcend and include. Each stage moves beyond or transcends the previous stage, but also enwraps or enfolds or includes it, like atoms to molecules to cells to organisms. Molecules go beyond atoms, but they also include them. They actually enfold them as ingredients. And cells go beyond molecules, but they also include them. They actually enfold them, and so on. And this goes on throughout evolution. When the human body first showed up, it had all of the major ingredients that had been produced in the cosmos since the Big Bang. Every human body had quarks, and then those were taken up into subatomic particles. Those were taken up into atoms. The human body had all of those. It had molecules, molecules. Then it had cells, and then it had cells going all the way up through, like, the reptilian brain stem, paleomammalian limbic system, the mammalian cortex, and the human neocortex. Every single major ingredient produced by evolution was contained in the human body. So we see that transcend and include, transcend and include. And we see the same thing on the interior of humans as well. So, we talk about, for example, human identity goes from egocentric to ethnocentric to world centric to cosmocentric. And each one of those is more and more inclusive. So, identity goes from me to us to all of us to all beings. Each stage transcends and includes. Each stage goes beyond the previous stage, but also includes or unfolds it. Until consciousness has transcended everything and included everything. And that's known as cosmic consciousness or unity consciousness. And in this process, something can go wrong at every stage. Dogs get cancer. Atoms don't. So each stage, as it gets more complex and it transcends and includes, it introduces more problems. It solves the problems of the previous stage, but then can introduce its own problems. So something can go wrong with transcend and include. If we don't transcend the lower stage properly, then we remain stuck or fixated to that lower stage. But if we don't include the lower stage properly, we only end up repressing it or dissociating that stage which causes all sorts of neurosis and psychosis and other dysfunctions. So this means starting the very earliest years of life, we want to help children engage this developmental or evolutionary process in a healthy, functional, happy way. So we don't want limiting beliefs, oppressive social conditions, or things like disease or poverty, all of which derail This developmental process. And this means it will also profoundly limit the child's spiritual development, both in what we call growing up and in waking up. So we definitely want to watch this in children and do everything we can to help the overall process unfold in healthy and happy ways. And
0: Ken, do you know of any experiments in the world today, any philosophers, any teachers, any educators who are creating a vision for education that you are excited about?
1: Yes, actually, there are more and more attempts at getting education out in more and more creative ways. And this goes along a lot of different avenues. One is just simply taking the material and putting it online essentially for free. So we have right now, most of the really large universities, MIT is doing this, Harvard is doing it, Stanford's doing it, Berkeley's doing it. They're taking some of their best courses and they are creating online versions and they're giving them out for free. And there are the course that was done on artificial intelligence through Stanford, over 160,000 people took that course. And over 400 of them scored higher than the highest students doing it at Stanford. So those are 400 kids that are smarter than
0: anybody at Stanford that would never have gotten that education. But beyond that, because we've all heard of the MOOCs, right? We're talking about curriculum. Stanford is still teaching a very limited set of curriculum based on the vision that you outlined. Do you know of any attempts, particularly not at the college level, but for pre-college? all the way down to elementary school and kindergarten. Do you know yes. any attempts that excite you there where the focus is not on technology or distribution, but yes. on a new curriculum? Yes. yes. And that's why I said
1: there's a lot of experiments happening in a lot of different ways. And that first one was just one way. And that just had to do with getting it out to numbers. But the way they're doing that is indeed standard traditional education. So that's not as exciting as finding new ways to actually teach a human being, all of its potentials. And that's really what we're talking about when we talk about education is teaching human 101. We're not even doing that. As I said, we're just teaching one or two lines. We're not teaching levels. We're not teaching states. We're not teaching quadrants. It's pathetic. But there's, for example, one university that's just starting up now, and it just has its first students. It just opened its doors, and it's called Ubiquity University. And ubiquity is in six different countries. It's expanding to 12 and then 30 and 40. And it's looking to be really a worldwide university. And it's also really fought to keep costs very, very low. So you can get a bachelor's degree for right around $5,000. And these are highly acclaimed teachers and fully accredited courses but what makes it unique is that they're using the Aqua framework to teach all of their material. So when a student signs up in their freshman year, they're given an introductory course that explains the Aqua framework. And it says, here's a framework of the universe that you're now in. You're in a universe that has these quadrants. It has the good, the true, and the beautiful, and it has art, morals, and science. I, we, and it, and so on. And so you're going to learn things in all of those. And each of those have also their own specific educational components. So in the upper left, which is one of the quadrants, you'll be learning about lines of development. You'll be learning about levels of development. You'll be learning about states of consciousness. And you'll be doing personal work like shadow work in addition to learning all about facts and information in the right-hand quadrants. And so from day one, that student taking that course has an overview, an integral overview of their world, where they are in it. And then more than that, every course they take In the coming four years, they'll know how it fits in that overall integral framework. It'll be pointed out to them. And so they'll know when they go in and they learn quantum physics. They'll know how that fits with cultural studies and ethnomethodology and history and art and psychotherapy and surgery and medicine. They won't just be given this course and said, oh, and physics explains everything, and it's the queen of sciences, and you don't have to learn anything else. Just learn physics, and you know it all. That'll never happen to these kids. They will be getting a truly holistic education from day one, and every course they take will fit in to that holistic framework, and so that's going to be resonating in their being as well. Because it's going to resonate with those aspects that exist in their own consciousness, in their own awareness, in their own being. And so they'll be growing while they're learning about this world that's truly encouraging. That's a very optimistic approach. And we just can't wait to see how that works out.
0: That's beautiful, Ken. I'm on the website right now, ubiquityuniversity.org. Is this something you're involved with?
1: I am. They actually asked me to be chancellor
0: of it. I see. That's beautiful.
1: Now, is there anything happening
0: for kids under 18, elementary school and high school?
1: What I hear now are several groups that are all taking integral ideas and are attempting to apply that to all different levels. Of education, and it is being done. I mean, we hear about it happening in Hong Kong, for example. There's a high school that's doing it. We hear about it happening in Pasadena. There are several books that have been written on it. One is called, I think, Educating Brilliance or Luminosity, and that talks about applying it and everything from college courses down into first grade, second grade, and K one to K twelve. So we're right at the beginning but it's a hot topic and it's really out there and it really is starting to get done in a lot of ways. So I would say in the next five years, we're gonna see some truly encouraging and very impressive moves to start really educating
0: human 101. I see, that's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful vision. I hope you enjoyed that episode, guys. That was a long episode. When you're talking to a man as brilliant as Ken Wilber, you want to go deep. You want to really understand how he thinks. And I hope you enjoyed that. Now, given how long this episode is, I know some of you might want additional resources and materials and transcripts. You can get that all from podcast.mindvalley.com forward slash Ken dash Wilber forward slash Ken dash Wilber. I'll see you again soon on our next episode. In the meanwhile, don't forget to rate and review the Mind Valley Podcast and subscribe to it if you haven't already. If you like the Mind Valley Podcast,